Lemonade is a taste of summer, right? I mean, some of you drink lemonade all year round, but it definitely is a summer thing. And when you have a great glass of lemonade that's just perfectly balanced, you know what I'm talking about? There's few things if you're thirsty that beat that. A perfectly balanced glass of lemonade. Now, some of you, most of us, if not all of us, have had a not-so-great glass of lemonade, right? When you go to those parties, lemonade's one of those things that can go either way, and you don't know what's going to be. You can take it and drink, and it could be nothing but six pounds of sugar and a little bit of water, and that's like way too much on that side. Or it could be so sour and tart, the back of your tongue like rejects, goes in back to your throat, and you're just like, ah, I can't handle that. Lemonade could go either way. Some people approach the Christian life like lemonade. Some people forget that the Christian life is made up of grace and truth. And sometimes what some people do is they'll get into that grace side of Christianity and they'll drink of it as they should and they'll love the mercy and they'll love the forgiveness and they'll love all that as we should because that's who God is. But they will stay in that spot and forget truth and then what happens is they do whatever they please. They never resist temptation. They dive into every sinful inclination they have and they just say, well, God will forgive me but there's no transformation and they just continue to live a life of sin while just banking on the grace of God. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 says that's not Christianity. Or you could swing to the other side and be all about truth, where you're going to try to obey all the commands of God on your own and in your own strength. And you try to set up all these rules and you put rules on top of rules so that you won't sin and you won't do these things and you find that it doesn't work and then these types of people quickly become the truth police where they start to police everybody else around them and say you're not measuring up with the truth and there's no grace whatsoever and we can easily camp on this side as well the christian life is meant to be lived in grace and truth and in john chapter one it says that jesus came and when jesus came he was full of grace and full of truth he was the perfect reflection of grace and truth. And this morning in our text, we're going to see this is the essence of who he is because we're going to see him in one of the most painful moments of his life on earth. And do you know that when you go through in a painful, difficult trial, you get squeezed. And what's really inside of you begins to come out. And what we're going to see in our text today is Jesus gets squeezed. And as he gets squeezed, what comes out of him is grace and truth. He gets squeezed by betrayal. One of the most hurtful things a human being can go through. And Jesus goes through it in a way, in an intensity that we cannot imagine. And what comes out of him is grace and truth. If you have a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 14. We are going to continue our series through the book of Mark and look at the ultimate betrayal. And we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. And as we see these two passages of Scripture, we're going to see this betrayal happen and see what gets squeezed out of Jesus. So if you're new to the Bible, Mark is in the New Testament about three quarters of the way through. Turn your Bible, you'll see Matthew, and then you'll get to Mark. If you hit Luke or John or Acts, you went too far. So Mark chapter 14, and I want to begin by focusing on verses 17 and 18 of Mark 14. Mark 14, verses 17 
and 18. It says, When evening came, he, Jesus, arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, how's that for dinner conversation? They come and they gather, and Jesus leads with this. That Jesus is with his disciples reclining at a table. The table is about a foot off the ground, and they're reclining head to foot, head to foot. We saw a picture, the same setting last week uh, when Pastor Kale preached, and man, did Kale do a good job or what last week? Wasn't that good? And he taught us, and in that setting we saw that this woman came in and anointed him as Messiah, anointed him to be the one who would, be, uh, the, who would pay for the sins of the world. Jesus' life was full of huge swings of extremes. One moment he's being anointed Messiah, this moment he's going to be betrayed. Jesus knew what it was like to live life that was from one extreme emotionally to the other. And what we're going to see is he goes and swings to the difficult extreme and he gets squeezed. And what comes out is grace and truth. So imagine these 12 disciples sitting around him at this dinner scene and then he drops this bomb and he says, one of you will do a sin that most people could never imagine. One of you after all that we've been through, after all you've seen, one of you will betray me. They had to feel the shock of that. Their hearts began to pound. They started feeling like, oh my goodness, is he talking about me? Would I do that? Did I do that? And they're trying to rehearse everything that's gone on in their mind. And they have seen what he can do. They've seen the awe. They've seen the wonder. And now they are stunned and stressed and anxious, and look at the response in verse 19. It said, They began to be distressed. And one by one they said, Surely not I. Surely not I. Surely not I. Surely not I. And they went around the table, and each one said, It wouldn't be me. And even Judas himself looked Jesus in the face and said, Surely not I. They all denied it. It can't be me. And then Jesus addressed them. Look at verse 20. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. And we know in another account that that was Judas. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now don't miss this next sentence. Just as Jesus speaking. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Did Jesus just say that? Did Jesus just say it would be better for a person to not have been born? That non-existence was better than their existence in this moment. Did Jesus say that? Sometimes we clean up the sayings of Jesus because they settle on our hearts and they make us very uncomfortable because that would be a horrible thing to say to a person. And we think, surely Jesus would never say anything like that. 
I want to give us some context from, and help from the other Gospels to look and see how this grace and truth thing has happened even before this moment of betrayal. Jesus has laid out grace and truth towards Judas time and time again. And all these things will show us that though he is giving us grace and truth and Judas is not responding, Jesus is still in complete control of the whole situation. Jesus extends so much grace to Judas. First, he is with them at the Passover meal. At the high point of what they celebrate, Jesus didn't kick him out. He didn't tell him he couldn't come. He's with them in this moment. And even the seating arrangement is a gracious gift from Jesus that we see in other accounts that the way it was set up, Jesus had his head right by Judas's chest. And so there was a moment there where there could have been a private conversation, where Judas could have easily said to him, Jesus, don't tell anyone this, but I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? This is what's going on in my heart. I'm thinking of being betraying you for a price because this greed has filled my heart. Will you ask? That could have happened in that moment, but it didn't. Jesus created this environment for Judas to come and repent, but he denied it and turned it away. Jesus, before this, washed Judas's feet. He gathered all the disciples right before this. And as a servant, he modeled servanthood to them. And he washed his feet and is symbolically saying to him, you are not clean in your heart, my friend. Will you come to me? Jesus made his loving appeal to Judas into his conscience time and time again. Will you come and be clean? And then in John's account of this story in chapter 13, it says that he specifically dipped the bread in the dish and extended it to Judas. And in that culture, this extension of bread from the dish was an invitation of deep friendship and forgiveness if there was a wrong done. Jesus was extending this and saying, Judas, all you have to do is take this bread. All you have to do is come to me and you could be set free from this thing that you're carrying in your heart and your mind. You could be released from this sinful action. Just come. That's all you have to do. But he didn't take it. He didn't take the invitation. And finally, there's another way that Jesus so extended grace to Judas and it's through this context, there's this Old Testament story that is brought about in how Jesus approaches this that involves bread and dipping and reclining and betrayal. And when Jesus talked and said what he did in verse 21, the disciples would be, know exactly this thing that Jesus is referring to based on the stories they heard from the time they were little. Because they heard of a story from King David's life. King David had a counselor named Ahitrophel. And Ahitrophel was one of David's closest counselors, closest confidants. And Ahitrophel de- uh, betrayed David, turned his back on him. And after he betrayed David, he went out and he hung himself. And Jesus 
uh, or David talks about this and he writes about it in Psalm 41. He says this, even my friend in whom I trusted, the one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. And the wording that he uses in verse 21, the disciples would know that Jesus has set this whole thing up to bring about this foreshadowing to say, hey, Judas, remember Ahitrophel. Remember what David wrote about him. He was referring to this man. And he's using this setting to easily be picked up. And he's saying, Judas, out of all the grace and the truth that Jesus could give, don't be like Ahitrophel. You know what lies ahead down that path. You know that his destiny was to be hung. You are not clean. Come to me and repent. Why not give up and repent? Judas, do you really want to do this? You don't have to go down that path that we saw that Old Testament counselor do and we've heard the story time and time again. Instead, come to me. Time and time, in many different ways, Jesus reached out graciously, lovingly, truthfully to the one who would betray him. And the offer... Jesus' offer was real and genuine. Some people think, well, no, Judas had to betray him because that's how he got to the cross. Jesus would have fulfilled his mission to the cross no matter what. Judas, if he would have came and repented, would have been restored and would have been still part of the 12 disciples. The offer was authentic and real and true. Just like the offer comes to us, authentic, real, and true. No matter what you're contemplating, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've committed, you have never gone beyond the point of grace at this moment in your life. Jesus died on the cross to pay for the penalty of your sin, and he gives you an offer that if you allow him to enter into your life and you surrender to him and you long to follow him in grace and truth, he will forgive you and set you free and give you a new life, a life with eternal hope. It's an amazing offer that he extends. But Judas, instead of taking that offer, instead of having that conversation when he was at the chest of Jesus, instead of taking the bread of forgiveness, instead of heeding the warning of the counselor of King David, instead of realizing he was unclean, instead of repentance, he responded in arrogance. And the account in John 13 says, at that moment, Satan entered into him. It was a midnight of the soul. And in response to that, Jesus says, it was better for you if you were not born. There was a horror that lied ahead for Judas that Jesus knew about. Can you imagine Jesus saying such a thing? I think it's normal for us to recoil at that given how we live in our context and what we see and what we value. But that shows the extent that in our current place in life on earth, it's hard for us to understand true holiness. It's hard for us to understand the true holiness of God in light of unrepentant, arrogant sin. It's hard for us to understand holy judgment It's hard for us to understand this 
darkness of unrepented sin against the holiness and the brightness of God. We will never be able to fully comprehend it. That's why we have to acknowledge it's there. And our proper response is to be humble and let our hearts be captured as much as possible with the awe and the holiness of God. Jesus extended Judas so much truth. Judas was one of the disciples. He learned all these things from the greatest Bible teacher that ever existed. This is a gracious warning to all of us. He had the master, and he still did not allow the word of God to sink into his heart and lead to repentance. It's too easy to master a few buzzwords in the Christian culture, to fake spiritual maturity, to come to church and make it look like you are so close to God. We can easily fool the people in church, but we will never fool a holy God. And today's lesson stands as a gracious warning to us that we are not here to play games with God, to pretend like we're spiritual, to be something we are not. The proper response before God is to get before Him in repentance and say, God, I need you. Oh, do I need you. See, Jesus knew Judas' heart. He knew the who, the what, the when, the how. And he was in complete control in the midst of this time when something so horribly painful would happen to him. He extended to Judas the hand of mercy and Judas declined and chose his own way. Author and pastor Tim Keller simplifies the gospel in this phrase and it's just so true. He says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we can ever dare believe, yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. That's worth repeating again. Let that sink in. This, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves. We are broken. We need him. That's what we just sang than we ever dared believe because we think, well, I'm not too bad. I look at that person, I look at that person. No, we have to understand any sin against a holy God is, is something that separates us from him that we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we don't have to change ourselves because we can't. We can never make ourselves good enough for God. At the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to hope so our Reaction should be to lean into him, to say, God, I need you. But what is also true that we learn from Judas is that we must lean into the love of God in order to give up the things we want for ourselves. And we must trust God that he will be the one to fulfill our needs and our longings. And unfortunately, Judas never got to that place, so the betrayal happened. It took place. Jesus would go on and predict Peter's denial, talk about adding insult to injury, and then he would go to the garden of Gethsemane before the cross. And in the garden, he wanted to get community around him in one of the most stressful, anxiety-filled moments of his life. And he wanted to feel the love of his disciples, but they weren't able to deliver. And in the midst of what was supposed to be an incubator of hope, an incubator of encouragement, an incubator of strength, 
The most painful thing that Jesus experienced on earth happened, and betrayal came. Look at verse 43 to 45. Jesus receives this betrayal. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So Judas approaches Jesus in this garden area, and then there's a small army that was gathered around the perimeter, made up of Jew and Gentiles. You couldn't get Jew and Gentiles to do anything together. God's mission was to bring them together in the church. You couldn't get them to do anything together. But now they're formed in this horrible cause to take down Messiah. They were armed for a battle. They came ready to take him captive. And Judas arranges this signal. Now notice this. Did you ever notice that Judas didn't just say, I'm going to point to the one that you take as prisoner. I'm going to point out who Jesus is. I will say, hey, army, right here, here's the guy. No, he didn't do that because he still wanted to lead a two-faced, hypocritical life. He didn't want the other disciples still to know that he was the one that sold out their master. He wanted to still keep that secret. He wanted to keep his sin in a secret place. And when sin stays in a secret place, it can never be forgiven and and cleansed. And so he kept it there. So instead of pointing him out, he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take one of the most affectionate symbols of that culture and of that day. And the one I kiss will be the one that you're supposed to take prisoner. Now it's interesting that this word kiss there is a different Greek word than the typical one used for the greeting that happens in this culture. In that culture, for people to greet each other with a kiss was a common thing. And there was a word for it, but this word is different. This word is a word that means a really, really affectionate greeting. It was the kind of greeting that you probably experienced with your loved ones after the safe-at-home order when you didn't have a lot of contact, and then you see somebody that you haven't seen that meant a lot to you, and you haven't seen them for over a year, and you gave them this embrace, but it wasn't just an embrace. You held on for a long time. That was the symbol that Judas gave and set up for the ultimate betrayal of the Son of God. It dug the knife even deeper. Notice, interestingly, in verse 44, it ends with this. The betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kissed, he said, he is the one, arrest him. And then look at this phrase, take him away under guard. That means take him safely. Keep him safe. Judas has actually rationalized that what he is doing is actually good for Jesus. You were led away safely. If I wasn't around and did what I did, they would have taken you in a whole lot more violent way. I was the guy that made sure you were protected. He acts like he's helping Jesus in this moment. This means he rationalized his betrayal to the point that he thinks he's doing a good deed. We do that a lot as well too, don't we? You know, lying in this moment is actually really the best thing for that situation. I've had so many times a spouse who's committed adultery try to explain to me how going this route and abandoning this marriage is actually the best thing for this marriage and the best thing for my spouse. 
A sinful heart can go to such a dark place, often feeling noble as they carry out wrong decisions that are not honoring to God. And to paint the picture farther, he gives them this kiss. Judas uses a symbol of deep love and brotherhood to betray God, the author of life. Judas shows us how far and how low the human heart can go when it's unchecked by God's Spirit and just cast into sin. And Jesus' response is the opposite. Jesus shows us how high the love of God can soar, even in the midst of painful betrayal. Look at verses 46 and 47. It says, They took a hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The kiss was followed by this chaos and commotion that erupted. Judas is hoping just to get out of there, collect his money, uh, let the connection happen. I'm going to save face. They won't know it's me. It's all a secret, and I'm out. Jesus was seized and arrested, and during the chaos, Peter picks up a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the people coming to arrest him. In another account, we see that Jesus takes that ear and heals that person. Grace and truth. And this is a very, very important side note that we need to investigate. Peter's action here tells us something about ourselves. Peter's actions show us how easy it is to be out of step with Jesus without even knowing it. So many times we serve Jesus or we even try to defend Jesus and we are so completely out of step with his will. Have we cut off any ears lately? From a swing that we took, that we should have done, that was based out of our own self-righteousness and arrogance? If so, repent. Submit to Christ and make it right. You see, this is why it's so important to be connected to a group of other people who are following Christ who will love you enough to share lovingly your blind spots and my blind spots so that we can live in a way where we don't go off track because it's so easily done. Even Peter did that. Look at verses 48 and 49. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus was asking this question rhetorically. He wasn't expecting an answer. He meant to shame them by pointing out the absurd way they were going about arresting him. They didn't arrest him publicly because, like Judas, they wanted to stay under the cover. They didn't want to face the truth of their sin and what they were doing. How absurd would that be? So they said, we'll keep it secret. And Jesus was saying, do you see what you're doing? Jesus was asking, have you no shame? Have you no conviction? Have you no fear of God? But people whose conscience have been seared and have never come to Christ cannot experience a godly shame and conviction unless the Holy Spirit comes about and gives that. Nothing Jesus said turn them from their sin, which fulfilled many of the prophecies stating that Jesus is truly the Messiah. And look at verse 50, where this all goes. Verse 50 stuck in there, this first sentence. 
And it just is one of the most significant sentences in the Gospels. Then they all deserted, deserted him and ran away. They all left. The closest followers. The ones who said, no matter what they do, I will be there till the end. They all left. Jesus knows the pain of betrayal. Jesus knows the pain of loneliness. Have you ever experienced betrayal and the pain of that? Have you ever experienced the pain of loneliness? In Hebrews language, in the book of Hebrews, it says we do not have a high priest that cannot empathize with what we feel, but we have a high priest in Jesus Christ who empathizes in every single way, everything that we experience, he has gone through. So if you go through horrible pain of betrayal or horrible pain of loneliness, lean into your Savior knowing that he has gone to that dark place before you. And he knows what it's like. He knows the heartache. He knows how betrayal and loneliness can cut through the human heart. His closest followers disappeared into the night. Some ran away. Some probably hid to look and see what all was going on. And just as Jesus predicted, he was in total control of the situation. And then something interesting happens in verse 51. It says, Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. They caught a hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. It seems odd that that's just dropped in the middle of this story. The Greek puts that young man somewhere in the age of 14 to 17, not part of the raid, just kind of there minding his own business. Many, many scholars believe that Mark just wrote himself into his gospel as a cameo appearance. Mark was the son of Mary who was a follower of Jesus, and Mary was probably there at the garden with Jesus in this moment. Mark was probably brought there as a young man who was sleeping in the garden in his what would be equivalent to our pair of boxer shorts. And then this whole thing erupted. And he probably put that in there for two reasons to say, first of all, I I witnessed these things. I saw these things happen. But also to show his faithless, weak heart in that moment. It was probably like a master painter painting himself into a portrait to say, I was an eyewitness to these events. And what about Judas? Mark never mentions Judas the rest of this gospel letter. We know from Matthew's gospel that he feels remorse and eventually hung himself, which should speak to us that we understand that remorse is a long way from repentance. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. Repentance leads to life and a new beginning. Remorse can lead to death. Judas died in his sin, refusing to humble himself, refusing to confess his sin and ask forgiveness, and accept Jesus' offer. The very thing Jesus was giving him all the time was grace and truth to prevent the inevitable, and he never opened his heart to it. He stands as an example for us, a warning for us to heed. So what can we learn for this? 
betrayal redeemed, what can the human heart learn? First of all, number one, that Christ extends his love and his grace to the worst of sinners. The fact that Jesus extended all this love and grace to his betrayer tells us he extends it to the worst of sinners. We see him do that throughout the Gospels. That is the heart of God. That heart of God does not change. We can vilify Judas as a monster, but we need to understand our own depravity can take us to that place. But God comes and rescues us with his grace, especially in those moments where we come and invite him into our life. And we approach him with humility and brokenness. See, that's what's required, a humility and a brokenness. Number two, anyone is free to reject God's offer and run into the darkness. Anyone is free to reject God's offer and run in the darkness. Judas did not have to do what he did. Judas did not have to betray Jesus. He chose to. And Judas's legacy stands before us and asks us, are we going to serve and follow Jesus or are we going to yield to the sinful inclinations of our heart and let them take us away from what God wants of our lives? Are we going to claim to follow Jesus but continue in sin? Are we going to move to that side where it's all about forgiveness and grace but not and miss the whole idea that we're supposed to get into that forgiveness and grace, let that empower our hearts to say, because you're this good, because forgiveness is so amazing, because His grace is so powerful, I don't want to stay living in my sin. I want to be empowered to live in truth, empowered to live in holiness. See, that's the Christian life that Jesus wants us to live He extends the offer of grace and forgiveness, but we must repent and allow him in. Number three, Satan is looking for an opportunity to work against God. He is looking for an opportunity to work against God. The Bible teaches that the person who keeps unresolved sin in their heart is the perfect vessel to be used for Satan's desire to attack and destroy God's people to cause division in the church. At first, it looks like the person is immune, that they just do these kinds of things and it doesn't matter. But a time comes when the truth will be revealed. It's so important to confess sin to God and repent quickly. When I was 21 years old, my pastor gathered a group of men together for a quasi-birthday party for me. And one of the things he asked the men to do is to take a three-by-five card and write either a verse or a piece of advice and present that as the gift. And then they prayed for me. It was one of the most wonderful moments I had as a new Christian. And I remember this one man who I deeply respected and admired. He wrote a simple thing on the card. It wasn't a Bible verse. It wasn't anything like that. He just wrote on the card, keep a short account with God. Keep a short account with with God. And what he meant by that is when you sin and when you blow it, and speaking to me, when I sin and when I blow it, which I will do just like you will do, don't let time go by before you go back to God and repent. Quickly go to the throne of God and say, God, please forgive me for this sin. Will you give me your grace? I don't want to live a life like this. I turn from that sin. I turn to you. Keep a short account with God. Be quick to repent and confess. And if there's anything we see from 
Judas's life, that is it. Because there is always hope for repentance and restoration through Jesus Christ. Just invite him into your life, no matter what you're going through. There is hope because Jesus conquered the devil in his schemes and he conquered death itself. And now he extends to us an offer for resurrected life as we come before him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us the grace to embrace our Savior Jesus. Give us the grace to lean into him. Give us the grace to invite him into our hearts, even those dark places where we feel stuck with our sin, where we feel chained to the things that you don't want us chained to. God, give us the grace to invite your spirit into those places that we may be transformed, that we may be set free. We thank you that that's who you are. We thank you that that's the kind of Savior you are, that you come not to the clean heart that's been dressed up for you, but you come to the heart that's broken and sinful and says, I have no idea how to get out of this and I need you. Thank you that you conquered sin. Thank you that you conquered death. Thank you that you are the one that can bring hope into the darkest places of our life. And we ask that the truth of that would sink deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand.